0: As immigrants, we are some of the most optimistic and dedicated Americans that, in fact, for people like me who became an American by choice, we are deeply dedicated to the democratic ideals of the country. Many of us have fought to be here, continue to fight to be here, and who better to be in government fighting on behalf of other Americans?
1: I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. Today's guest is Sayu Bajwani. Sayu served as New York City's first Commissioner of Immigrant Affairs following 9-11, and she's also the founder of the organization New American Leaders, which prepares citizens from the immigrant community to become leaders and run for office. And actually, New American Leaders is the only organization of its kind, the only nonpartisan organization focused on bringing new Americans, both first and second generation Americans, into the political process. You know, and I find this incredibly inspiring, along with Sayu's personal story of coming to America as a young college student. You know, when I have conversations like this, it just reminds me of why I love doing this. Talking to women who put everything they have into making our democracy better. You know, they see a problem and they say, if it's a problem with our democracy, if it's a problem with the country, it's my problem. And they step up and they fix it. You know, and I've admired Sayu's work and her organization from afar for a while now. So I'm truly honored to have had the chance to talk to her. I really hope you find this conversation inspiring too. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Sayu Bajwani. Sayu Bajwani, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to ask you a bit about your background because your parents were refugees from India and they migrated to Belize when you were when you were very young. So you were raised in Belize, but at some point they wanted you to study in America. So what were their expectations, do you think? What were they hoping you would find
0: or experience in America? I think that for my parents, the hope, like it is for many parents, is that their kids are going to have a better life than the ones that they had. Uh, So I think they hoped for financial security. I think they hoped for me to be protected from some of the things that hurt us psychologically, like discrimination and lack of security both emotional and financial they also might have secretly wanted me to just get married and have kids marry early
1: right so do you think that they romanticized america to some extent or you know idealized the experience you'd have in comparison to their lives well my
0: parents came back and forth to america because they ran a retail business in belize so i think for them america was They had a sense that survival in America was going to be harder than it had been for them in in Central America where they were living. Uh, So I'm not sure that they romanticized it as much as they feared it, if you will, um, in its bigness, their understanding of its sense of bureaucracy and the struggle that it would take to make it here.
1: You know, I think it's interesting that you said fears because... I think that one of the things that I've learned as a parent is we all have this instinct to project, you know, our own experiences and our own trauma onto our children and you know we try to protect them from those same from those same experiences although their circumstances might be completely different from our own. And you know I'm thinking about my own parents, you know, growing up in the deep south shortly after Jim Crow laws ended and you know they projected their fears about racism onto me although my experience with race was going to be quite quite different in many ways. So I was wondering, you know, given that your parents were refugees, how that played into their fears about what you might experience and, you know, also wanting you to study
0: in America? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And and actually, my parents were um, British subjects twice in their lives. So when they were children uh, living in what was then a unified India, they were subjects of British colonial rule. And then they became refugees after the partition of India and Pakistan. And they obviously met and married as adults and moved to Belize where they again became British subjects. And when Belize, which used to be known as British Honduras, went through its independence process from England, I think that resurfaced a lot of trauma from childhood. Because although they were very young, they and their families had to cross an arbitrary border to get to the newly drawn lines of India. And in Belize, they had built up some economic security, and they were deeply worried about how independence would affect their economic security. Uh, They also had been aware, uh, your listeners might know about the incidents or the the time um, in Uganda when Idi Amin expelled Indians who had been living there. um, And they lost a lot of what they had built in that country. Uh, Just like we're experiencing today in America that for many immigrants and refugees, the new home is the only home that they know. And so when they are uh, restricted from becoming citizens, when they are... um, evicted deported uh, threatened they lose everything that they they know um, and so my parents experienced this renewed trauma as adults and one of the things that that my mother has shared with me is that when they made a decision so so this is 1980 1980 Britain uh, and Belize were undergoing independence talks and Belizean citizens had a choice about whether they wanted to get a new Belize passport or retain their British citizenship. And for my parents, the choice was Belizean because they wanted to prove that they were loyal to the country that they had been living in for a decade. And in some ways, I think it was like they had no choice. Because if they had chosen British citizenship, which might have made it easier to travel around the world, which might have made it easier to immigrate to America, uh, they would have perhaps sent a signal that they weren't as committed to Belize as they were. And, And so I share that story only because I think there's a lot of emotional strain and psychological trauma that comes from displacement and that comes from always feeling somewhat insecure about the place that you consider home.
1: Yeah, I was reading an essay that you'd written about, you know, when you were about to go off to college, or around, I guess, age 17, and you were preparing to come to America and you had to visit the visa office. And you recount this experience that you had with the visa officers and, you know, how they were rude to you and how they barked these questions at you as if they were trying to establish some hierarchy. What did that experience mean to you in terms of signaling what being an immigrant in America might be like.
0: It's, it is interesting because we did, um, unlike other immigrants, I had had the experience of coming back and forth to the United States uh, because of my parents' business and because we had family members here. That was very different from making, going through the process of coming here for an, at that time, I wasn't coming as an immigrant. I was coming as an international student. And so, uh, the amount of bureaucracy and paperwork that you had to go through in order to prove that you could come to the United States and study. And, you know, I ended up not having student loans, but the reason that I didn't have student loans is because my parents had to do whatever they could to pay for my education, because I wouldn't have been able to come and study in America if I couldn't demonstrate at the U.S. embassy that my parents had the resources to pay for my education. And so it is a bit of, um, I don't know, maybe a double-edged sword, right? Because you, on the one hand, the United States, uh, its universities, uh, its tech industry, many of its industries survive because immigrants come here for higher education and then come and work in these industries, and and in other industries as well. But in particular, when it comes to having to prove that you can study here and pay for yourself, uh, I think there's an image that we have that you know we're giving out university degrees at the borders, when in fact people have to jump through a lot of hoops to be able to study here. And then after you finish your studies. If you want to stay and work, you also have to jump through a lot of hoops. And that's an experience that I certainly had that I definitely wasn't able to go and just get any job I wanted. I had to get the job in the companies that were willing to hire someone who was legally authorized to work but didn't have a green card. So there's this kind of window after you get your degree as an international student where you have something that's called an F1 and you have an opportunity to work, but not every company will hire you. And in fact, uh, in uh, I have a TED Talk in which I talk about losing my first job on the first day once it was discovered that although I was authorized to work, I didn't have a green card. And... Back in the 1980s, this company said, well, I'm sorry, but we can't hire you if you don't have a green card. That was just their requirement.
1: So that process took you 16 years, actually, from the time that you got your student visa to getting your citizenship. Is
0: that typical? I think that was actually, um, I think it's both fairly typical and also fairly quick. Uh, I didn't really have many hiccups. Uh, I was English speaking. I was able to pay the fees that were required for each stage of transition. I think that for many people, it takes much longer. Um, They have to learn the language, know it well enough to be able to pass the citizenship test. They have to be able to uh, sometimes, you know, people get green card, what are called green cards or lawful permanent residents by virtue of being able to demonstrate that they can work. So they have to be able to find an employer who's willing to help them navigate that paperwork process. So I think I was actually very fortunate in being able to do it so quickly.
1: And then I think you said it was just 9 months after becoming a citizen that 9/11 happens. And you know, I wanted to really talk to you about 9/11 because I was an adult when 9/11 happened. You know, and I think that living through 9/11 as an adult, it gives me at least a sense that anything can happen at any moment, right?
0: You know, I think for for those of us who have been working in immigrant communities, we see a lot of parallels with what is happening today Um, and in some ways a continuation and and a more extreme manifestation of of some of what was happening post 9-11. In fact, I was commissioner of immigrant affairs in uh, 2002 when the U.S. government began a program known in short as special registration, where men from a number of countries, um, men above the age of 16 from a number of countries, had to go and register with, uh, with the immigration services. Um, And so, you know, you had people who were uh, undocumented, for example, or who were not citizens who were unsure. uh, First of all, there was a lot of confusion about the program. Um, It was clearly a profiling program mandated by the United States government. That was the time when Uh, what was then known as the INS or the Immigration and Naturalization Services, was reconstituted. There are conversations right now um, calling for abolishing ICE, which is Immigration and Customs Enforcement. That agency actually was created after September 11th. So it's a relatively new agency. So what we're seeing now is that A lot of our communities, um, in particular communities, Arab American and American Muslim communities and South Asians who were negatively impacted after the first Gulf War and the second Gulf War and post 9-11, you know, have not really recovered from the profiling, the targeting and the fear that that brought on. And now we have these additional layers, you know, the Muslim ban. Uh, more hate crimes uh and so, for those of us who have been doing this work, there has been no stoppage, certainly, there have been cycles uh, but if you are a person from certain communities in America, and whether that's immigrant refugee or African American, there has always been either on the surface, or latent fear about what could happen. So when you say recover, what do you mean exactly? Do you mean recover emotionally from 9-11? Well, emotionally, but also uh, many families were separated because, for example, if men were concerned about uh, whether they would want to go and bring themselves forward to immigration authorities, uh, some of them left. United States and left their families here. Some of them were deported by the U.S. government and their families ended up here. And, you know, there's so many individual stories. And uh, unfortunately, I can't think of a specific example, but those families ended up making decisions amongst themselves about what was going to work best for the children and the adults in that family. And so that's one example of what I mean about recovering. There's been, you know, uh, the revelation about participation between the New York Police Department, for example, and um, religious institutions, faith-based institutions in New York, and how the NYPD used people to basically spy on Muslim communities. And so, you know, the level of trust, the deterioration of trust, which was already limited, there are those of us who see law enforcement as protection and those of us who see law enforcement as authority that we need to fear. And law enforcement institutions have not been good about long-term commitment to ensuring that communities see them as a source of protection rather than a source of fear. That's you know, a couple of examples and a of, couple of ways in which I feel that our communities have, have not recovered. I mean, young people, if you are a young person and you were bullied in school by your teachers uh, and your classmates, that kind of trauma is not something that you easily recover from or perhaps ever recover from.
1: Yes. Uh, you know, I've heard those stories where, you know, school-age kids were teased and, you know, called terrorists and you know that's just incredibly cruel and it's you know it's, it's a big emotional burden for
0: a child you know when you think about the impact of 9/11 and sometimes you know young people think that that they're joking and trying to be funny but the way that it's received is it contributes to making you feel lesser than and to feel all oh, and and when it's done by a teacher even right because we had Definitely, I was running a youth organization just before September 11. So I had many young people who were in my network, if you will, from whom I heard stories after September 11 that were really horrific and inexcusable about the kinds of things that their teachers said to them.
1: You know, that's, that's just really disturbing to think that a teacher, someone that a child trusts, would attach the horror of 9 11 to a child in their care. I mean, I can't fathom that.
0: You know, I, I think about the, the people to whom I'm related, who had to think about, you know, whether they should think twice about carrying a backpack, have a beard. I mean, just sort of, quote unquote, simple decisions that most of us make without thinking are decisions that become suddenly very loaded because of profiling.
1: You know, for me, I think one of the the most stark differences between then and now is that, you know, I remember Bush making a speech after 9-11. He said something to the effect of America is not at war with a religion. You know, we're not at war with Islam, but we are at war with evil, right? I remember him saying that he made this attempt to parse out a group of people from the actual terrorists. And I think this current administration, they've made no such attempt, right? And they aren't even interested in keeping up the facade of not being discriminatory or, you know, just being racist, to put it plainly.
0: Well, I think what we have in the Trump administration is the lifting of any facade at all that we are a country that was designed for anybody but white males. That those of us who are not white male have always understood that when we've interacted with the education system or the economic system or the political system. And so, you know, a lot of people talk about being shocked but not surprised that Trump got elected and shocked but not surprised at some of what is coming down from the administration. That these things, I think is so important that we no longer think about this administration as scattershot and disorganized because that in and of itself, I think, is an act. They know exactly what they're doing. Uh, it is designed to put us on edge it is really designed to deteriorate our family connections and the strength of our communities. Now, I don't think that they understand the strength of our connections to family and the power of our communities. Nevertheless, the intention is to destroy the things that hold us together. And it is, as you can imagine, and, and as you know, a continuation of something that has happened to other communities of color in our history as a country, but I think what's really key is for us to accept that this is an ongoing and strategic set of actions designed to slow down demographic growth, to induce fear, and in some ways also to deteriorate civil society. Because when we dismiss this as scattershot and disorganized, then we reduce the intentionality of
1: it. You know, I agree. I think there's an intentionality there. And in terms of people of color, you know, even outside of immigration, you can see this, for instance, in Jeff Sessions, you know, his reversing Obama's guidelines for private prisons, you know, or Chris Kobach, you know, the Voter Fraud Commission. And, you know, the debate about the NFL players kneeling, it may seem scattershot, but the overall effect for all of these groups is the same. And, and it's that's to suppress the voices of people of color. And I think it would be really naive to be remiss about the intentionality of that or to assume that it's, you know, some function of incompetence.
0: Well, you know, we hear every week that it's the worst week in the Trump administration, right? The week of family separation, the week of news about Russia, the week of Charlottesville. And I do think that there are some people that continue to think that things are worse than they've ever been, when for those of us who are the subjects of some of these policies and laws, things are definitely worse in that they are being publicly embraced by our leaders. But in terms of how they affect our day to day, our ability to get jobs, our ability to go to schools peacefully, our ability to live in harmony in our communities, these are challenges that we've experienced for a long time and, and, you know, for decades. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that the other day. And, you know, the thing that makes this administration different
1: in relation to the Republican administration before the Bush administration, is that at least with Bush, Right, Bush would say one thing, and perhaps you know it would be inconsistent with some policy that would follow what he'd said. But at least we all had something to hold him accountable to. You know, for instance, he'd make a statement about America being a nation of immigrants, right? Or that he values diversity. You know, and possibly he'd follow up with some anti-immigration policy. And at least, like I said, you know, we could hold him accountable to what he'd said before. But you know, now with this current administration, we're just all hoping that he doesn't act on you know all these terrible things he says on
0: Twitter. Yeah. (laughs) Which is a a low bar to set for the president of the free world. And I think that the multiple attacks and how they connect, I mean, you don't separate being a woman from being an immigrant, from being a person of color. And when all of those identities are under attack, then it can be really exhausting to know what to go after.
1: I want to talk about the gap in representation in government in relation to immigrants. Do you do you happen to know the numbers off the
0: top of your head? So there are over 500,000 local and state offices and fewer than two percent of those are held by Asian Americans and Latinos and not a single state legislature in the country has a proportionate amount of representation in terms of the population of people of color and the state legislators. So we, we have a gap at all levels of government. Similarly, in Congress, Native Americans, African Americans, Asian Americans, and Latinos are not represented in proportion to their population.
1: So I want to talk a bit about your organization, the New American Leaders. It was launched about 10 years ago, right? And I think your aim, of course, is to change all of this in
0: terms of, you know, representation in government. It's been around since 2010. And uh, I started New American Leaders with the intention of closing the representation gap, but particularly of closing the representation gap by helping to recruit and train first and second generation Americans to become the leaders that their communities needed. And by their communities, I mean, not just immigrant communities, but the communities in which they live and work that include both native born and immigrants. I believe that as immigrants, we are some of the most optimistic and dedicated Americans that in fact, For people like me who became an American by choice, we are deeply dedicated to the democratic ideals of the country. Many of us have fought to be here, continue to fight to be here, and who better to be in government fighting on behalf of other Americans. And the way that we work is to help our participants understand that they already have what it takes to run for office. I think there's a lot of mystery, notwithstanding this presidential election, that you need some sort of special qualification to be running for office. And part of our training revolves around helping folks identify the life experiences that they have had, that give them the qualities that we need in public servants. They're dedicated, they're resilient, They're culturally competent. They're passionate about the United States. They're committed to democracy. They understand their communities. And and so the training helps our participants to understand these things, but it also helps them to see that they are the best messengers to expand the electorate. So that if I, as a Latina in Arizona, I'm going into my district and talking to voters, or talking to residents who have either not registered to vote or never voted about why I'm running and why it's important to have my voice in the legislature and why it's important to have their support, I think that then I become a much better messenger for participating in democracy than anyone else. And and so we see our participants as being the most effective messengers for expanding the electorate. And for bringing new stakeholders into our democracy, the majority of elections are by incumbents are being won by the same because of the support of the same voters over and over. And until we change that equation and bring new voters into the conversation, we're not going to be able to change who is representing us. So the core of what New American Leaders does is to identify the people who can expand the electorate, change the narrative and thereby Help us to create a more robust democracy, not just in their cities and states, but around the country.
1: So what was happening in 2010 that that inspired you to start New American
0: Leaders? So actually. you know, some of what I was saying about the September post September 11th environment, um, was still holding true. And in fact, in 2010, as now, we don't have immigration reform. And in 2010, we also didn't have DACA, which is the program that helps to provide authorization for uh, young people who came here, commonly known as dreamers. And so when I started it in 2010, it was, uh, because immigration reform had continued to fail in Congress, and it was not clear that under President Obama we were going to get any additional traction. And in Arizona, SB 1070, which is commonly known as a show-me-your-papers law, passed. And that was on the heels of other anti-immigrant legislation in places like Colorado and became very clear to me that two things needed to happen, that we needed new voices in state legislatures who better understood the immigrant experience and that those were the voices that were going to go on to eventually be in Congress. And, you know, certainly I hope that we will have immigration reform before the next 20 years passes. Um, but my thought in 2008, uh, in 2010, sorry, was that we would get new voices in and that th- that would help build a pipeline to a Congress that looked like America. So how do you think the
1: 2016 election changed your organization and the people who come forward for training? Do you think they're more energized or driven given the current circumstances, or is there some fear and trepidation given the administration's crackdown on on immigrants?
0: You know, actually, I will say, in fact, that there isn't more trepidation and that last year, the number of applicants to our program in, in 2017, the number of applicants to our program doubled. And that many people who had taken our program prior to the 2016 elections who had sort of been on the sidelines trying to decide when the right time would be uh, stepped up to run so we have for example, an alumna in Arizona who is running for attorney general. she took our training in 2013, I believe and it was after the 2016 election that she decided to jump in the race. And so, you know, there are other examples like that. But, uh, but in terms of new applicants, the numbers doubled. And, you know, we talked a little bit about September 20, September 11th. And, I, and I do think that, among uh, American Muslim communities in particular, after September 11th, there was a lot of organizing and a lot of new institutions that came out of that. But I think a lot of individuals experienced a desire to kind of stay out of the public eye. But by the time of the 2016 elections, I think people were really tired of that. They were tired of always kind of... uh, shunning the public eye and the criticism that they knew that they would face. And they sort of, and I'm talking specifically now about there's an increasing number of American Muslims running for office. And I think that is in large part due to frustration of just saying, all right, we've had enough and it's not going to change unless we are the ones who are running for office. And they are experiencing you know, a a lot of Islamophobia on the campaign trail, but that's not stopping people. Uh, I think I was saying to you earlier offline that a lot of the women who are running are experiencing the double whammy of misogyny and racism. And I just want to underline that a lot of this comes from within the Democratic Party as well. It's not just a one party problem that we don't like newcomers. And whether they are newcomers because they are immigrants and refugees or whether they are newcomers to the political process, the political establishment has its people and has its idea of who those people should be and look like. And they are not immigrants, refugees and women of color. And so it's not the voters that are really the problem. Usually it's really the establishment, you know, whatever the progressive institutions are and in the Democratic Party that have an idea of what kind of candidate can win a race, what kind of candidate they want to represent them. And and so On the one hand, we're seeing increasing numbers. On the other hand, what is striking is that the way that the establishment works has not really changed that significantly.
1: You know, that this isn't the first time I've heard that criticism in relation to interparty support among Democrats, especially in relation to women, you know, and that anxiety to win back the Senate and the House, you know, regardless of how they feel personally in relation to a candidate being a woman or a person of color, you know, I think that sometimes that's overshadowed by their wanting to back someone they've deemed to be the safest bet.
0: Well, I mean, what's ironic about that is that the critical lesson of the 2016 election should be that someone who we all think is unelectable is, in fact, electable. So any old paradigm that we had about what is electable should really be thrown out the door. And we should be thinking about what it is that Americans want. And one of the things that they want is to not have politics as usual. And so if we keep elevating candidates that fit the same old mold, then we're going to continue to have losses. I mean, we really need people who bring new energy and new voices. And that's not just immigrants and refugees. You know, that's people who have been teaching in classrooms for years, people who have been struggling with student loans and paying their mortgage, working class folks, people who talk like regular people and don't talk in sound bites. I think that The fact that we continue to rely on some outdated mode of what is electable is a sign that we didn't learn what we were supposed to learn in 2016, which is, I mean, for better or worse, a lot of Trump supporters are getting someone who, quote unquote, they believe is telling it as it is, who's not like a usual politician.
1: You know, I mean, Trump supporters are really tricky and, you know, they're they're complicated punch and I don't really care to analyze them too deeply. But, you know, I can probably say pretty confidently that, that race played a really important part in their support more so than anything else, especially in terms of him being this kind of outsider candidate. And, you know, it's always interesting when I hear people make an assessment about their motives when they say, you know, they're voting against their own interests or why do they vote against their own interests. Right. And I say, you know, no, they actually aren't voting against their own interests. They're voting for their interests. Right. He was very clear that he was interested in, you know, making the country less brown. I mean, he was just very clear about that. And that's what they were voting for.
0: Yeah. And I think when when we say people are voting against their own interest. It is such a elite and patronizing thing to say about anyone because it assumes that people do not know what they want. And, you know, we, we talk about the fact that, you know, those of us who are interested in paying higher taxes for the better good of our communities are theoretically voting against our own interests as well because we're willing to pay more money out of our pockets for something that might not necessarily benefit us, right? Because I could make a decision as a middle class person to use my resources, to pay lower taxes and use what I save on taxes to buy whatever I need, whether that's better health care or better education. But instead, I support a tax system that allows us to take care of society at large. But no one ever says that I'm voting against my own interests. Um, and, and so I think we just have to be careful about using language that is insulting and patronizing because it alienates people, not just white working class voters or working class voters of color, but anybody who feels that what the message you're sending is, I don't know what's best for me. At the at very minimum, I should be able to make a decision based on what I think is right, you know, whether or not you agree with me. I mean, that's part of what democracy is. The ability to have choice so how are you feeling about midterms just generally i'm actually pretty excited about the midterms i think we're going to see a lot of exciting wins a lot of firsts a lot of record breakers in congress in statewide office I think people like Stacey Abrams in Georgia uh, will be very exciting. You know, we have a, um, the first Native American woman to represent New Mexico headed to Congress. So there, there are quite a few wins that I believe will will make us all feel really good about the work that we've put in and about the voices that we're going to have at the state and at the congressional level. What I am concerned about is that a lot of these wins that there are lots of groups that are going to take credit for these wins, even though they either didn't have very much to do with it or were just one of many factors that resulted in the wins. And I think that we're going to again do similar to what we were talking about earlier, take away agency from individuals. It's really the American people that are going to help elect folks, and it's going to be the blood, sweat, and tears of these candidates that are going to help them get elected. And sure, there's some political infrastructure that has developed around that, but ultimately, I think the resistance is not about these individual organizations. It's really about individual Americans. Uh, the second concern that I have is that a lot of these wins – as I said, are going to come about because of the local energy and the candidates themselves. It's unclear to me how on the progressive side, we are going to develop a winning strategy for the long term. Because what we're seeing right now is an incredible excitement and energy, which is not the same as a long term strategy and a plan for building the progressive infrastructure so that we can continue to be winning in large numbers all along. You know what I mean? I think there's there's a big disconnect between individual wins and long-term infrastructure.
1: You know, I've been thinking about that a lot lately in relation to how in many ways, the energy that's on the left with progressives and Democrats, it isn't always matched by pragmatic plans, especially given the short amount of time between now and midterms. But lately, I've seen a lot of movements like, for instance, the registration drive by the Parkland students, and then there's also a new um, voter registration effort headed by Michelle Obama. And there are a few other large-scale projects that I think are promising in relation to at least tackling the first hurdle, which is turnout in November. You know, so I'm cautiously hopeful.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it's, it's – um... It's a lack of pragmatism, as well as a lack of coordination. Um, So when you have lots and lots of groups working, you know, how many of these groups are going to survive, how many of them are going to come together to work on a strategy for 2020 and beyond. Uh, That's what I would really like to see in addition to individual wins. And I do feel optimistic about the wins. I I don't want to deny that optimism, which is what keeps me going every day. You have a book coming out soon, right? And it's titled um, People Like Us. So tell me about your book. Yeah, I'm really excited about uh, about the book, which is coming out on October 2nd, and it is available for pre-order at your favorite bookstore or online. The book is really a product of the work that I've done at New American Leaders. And, you know, I'll say as uh, a teaser, it has the stories of a number of New Americans who ran and won for office, in fact, before 2016. So the trend that we're seeing in in a much bigger way after 2016 is that voters want new voices representing them began earlier than that. And, And so it's a hopeful book. It shows that even in 2016, when the election results weren't what many of us hoped for, even in a year that was an election cycle that was filled with xenophobia and racism, that voters were able to make fantastic choices at the state and local level for people to represent them based on what understanding they had of their communities. And and so it's both a hopeful book about those stories, but it's also a kind of a primer for people who are thinking about why is it That state and local offices are still held by people who got elected 20 years ago. What are the problems in our system that make it so hard for newcomers? And and so I think it's a kind of a how-to guide about how we can transform local and state politics, as well as these hopeful stories about people who were formerly undocumented, people who defeated incumbents who had been there for 20 years. And it shows that it's possible. You know,
1: I'm really glad you mentioned hope a couple of times because it's something we haven't heard often in the past two years. So, you know, when I think about the premise of your book and the goals of your organization, it just makes me wonder what this whole fight about the border and about immigration and, you know, families seeking asylum and DACA and how it could all be different with equal representation in government. You know, what would these debates look like between the parties if we had equal representation in government, right? What could our country be? I mean, that's
0: exactly it. That's really the best summary of why we do the work that we do, because we know that these issues are going to stay front and center. And we want people like Pramila Jayapal in Congress to not be one of only a few voices. We want her to be part of a chorus of voices fighting back. And we have seen amazing leadership at the state, local and congressional level. But those voices, you can name them. You can name the 10 or 12 people you have been hearing. And while that's good that they're getting out there, we want it to be so that there's so many voices that they are actually able to move a bill and move policy and create the change and ideally never have family separation again, never have people's Americanness questioned again.
1: We'll you, Bajwani, thank you so much for joining me. And, you know, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for
0: having me. It was great. And I hope to be back when the book is out.
1: Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a supporter of The Electorate. Visit us at electorate.com and click on the donation link at the top of the page. The Electorate is now available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher please consider subscribing using your favorite podcast platform. Also, please like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash electorate. And until next time, keep up the good fight.